You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. John chapter 6. And while you're turning there, if you are new to Stonegate and just kind of stumbled in and uh, this has been one of your first couple of times here, we are in a set of sermons that we are calling Issues. And today we are going to look at the issue of gluttony, the issue of gluttony. I'm curious just for my own, uh, to satisfy my own curiosity, how many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on the issue of gluttony? Raise your hand. Okay, so a few of us. So I'm going to guess that probably represented one in five of us maybe in the room, something like that, so maybe 20% of us. Now, you know, just looking at that, wouldn't you consider there's something strange about that considering that that so few of us, that three out of four probably in the room or maybe four out of five, have not ever heard a gluttony, kind of how our relationship with food works in the Bible, have never heard that issue addressed, especially in light of us living in a culture that has such a dysfunctional relationship with food. That's the culture we live in. Like dysfunction and food are joined in the hip at our culture. Now, I, I, don't, uh, I don't feel like I have to, to give you like all the stats to verify that. I mean, I, I feel like you could probably just get a great sense of that by uh, heading down to any restaurant you want to go to and just paying attention. The next time you order something at a restaurant, looking at the ridiculous serving size that you're about to get. It's out of control. <laughs> Can we all just... Can we all see? It is out of control, the portion size. Now, that's one side of gluttony, but here's the other side of gluttony. Just kind of this inordinate desire for food and how we think about food and relate to food. Um, I Googled this week uh, the word diets. So diet, plural, diets. Googled that, just did a word search on it, Googled that. And do you know how many hits came up? 165 million. So I'm just saying, just from a, you know, just a surface level look at our culture, dysfunction is all over the place when it comes to food. So much so that I think it is pertinent that we think through with, with the Lord and through the Bible about how we're to relate to food, about what the Bible says about food, how, what, what a human being's relationship with food is to look like. And just on a personal level, you know, when, when I think about dysfunction in regards to food, it's not just a cultural thing. Um, the Lord has been gracious over the last year to make that a very personal thing for me and to see, just to shine a light on areas in my own heart where I have a very dysfunctional relationship with, with food. And this really, probably the, the whole thing could be summarized over the last couple of years of the Lord doing that with a story that happened here recently in our family. So part of just our like devotional time, I'll, th- I'll you know, throw a proverb out to our kids. So we have a seven, five, and a four-year-old. And uh, I'll throw a proverb out and I'll just try to explain it in a way that a seven, five, and four-year-old can kind of grasp it and we'll kind of talk through it. So about a month and a half ago, I threw out Proverbs 25, 28. Y'all know that one? It's, uh, you know, a man without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. That, that whole idea. And so I, we threw that out and we just began to talk about what does it mean uh, for a city to have walls? Why would an ancient city need walls? Talked about how it's for protection's sake. If a city has walls, they're relatively protected from the bad guys. They don't have, have walls. Bad guys can come in and do whatever they want in the city. That goes badly for the city. And then we talked about self-control being like those walls. So when a person has self-control, they're like the city with walls. Man, they're protected from the bad guys that live in their heart. When they don't have self-control, they are just like the city without walls. They're unprotected from the bad guys in their heart. And bad guys in their heart are going to come in and do bad things in their life. So we kind of had that whole conversation. And then uh, about two or three weeks later, uh, we left to go to home group. And to this particular home group, Laura made her world-famous meatballs. And they're world-famous around our house. You may not have heard of them, but they are world famous. So she's got this concoction that she marinates these meatballs in all day of some sort of like barbecue thing going on, mixing a bunch of jelly in with that, and they sit in that thing and cook in that thing all day long. And I'm just saying these meatballs bring a little bit of heaven down to earth. They're that good. And so we take these meatballs to the home group, and we get there, we, we you know, start kind of eating. That's kind of the first thing we do in our home group. And I go for round one. And I load my plate up with more meatballs than I needed the whole night in round one. I have, no, I have no idea how many times at the end of the night I had gone back 
And I definitely don't know how many meatballs I'd eaten that, that night. But you can, it's a safe assumption just to know it was way across the line. So we get back that night, and I'm feeling terrible. First of all, I'm feeling guilty. I'm like, God, what was I doing? What was I doing? And then I feel not just like guilty, but I feel terrible physically. Like I'm literally walking in the door thinking, I might die tonight of a meatball overdose. That could happen tonight in this house. And so Caleb is walking in the door with me, and uh, we walk in, he's my five-year-old, we walk in and I'm like, God, Caleb, I, I did it again, man. I, I OD'd on food. I, tonight I had no self-control with food. It's ridiculous. And just without missing a beat, he looks at me and he says, Dad, you're like a man without walls. <laughs> and I'm like, Caleb, you will never correct your dad with the Bible ever again in our home. That is not going to happen. Isn't it painful to be corrected by your own five-year-old? And, and really, that's a microcosm for much of what the Lord has been showing me, that I have a dysfunctional relationship with food, that I, not, not just like th those people out there, but I have a dysfunctional relationship with food. You know, uh, about, it's been, I don't know, probably eight or nine months ago, I started this little study through just thinking through with the Bible about how we are to relate to food. And one of the things that it showed me is that uh, um, I have a low-grade addiction that I carry with food. And the way that it exposed that is this little thing that I was doing. It, it creates this little alternative uh, kind of eating habits for you while you're doing this study. And one of the things that would happen every five or six days is it would make you go on a half portions like day. So just picture the moment you go out to eat and you buy a whole hamburger. But on that half portion day, guess what you're eating? Half the hamburger. I don't know if you know how hard it is to eat only half of what you bought. For me, that is a hard moment. So it was so crazy to watch what was happening in my mind. I ordered that whole food on half portion day and uh, man, the, the, the script of self-justification would just start to go crazy. All of a sudden, wasting food became a moral issue. That is right next to sin in the Bible, right there, wasting food. I'm thinking about kids on the other half of the planet that are starving to death. How could I dare let this half that food go to the, I mean, it was the craziest thing, but here's what it was showing me. I have a low-grade addiction to food, at best low-grade. Many times it's, it's higher than that. I have a dysfunctional relationship with food. That, that's the problem that I have. Now, and listen, I, I have just grown in seeing that it's not just my problem, but it's our problem. And the reason that this set of sermons is, has, you know, one of the issues is gluttony is because culturally it's an issue. I agree with what, you know, one author said when he said this, gluttony is perhaps the most tolerated sin in American Christianity. Now just think on that for a minute. Gluttony is perhaps the most tolerated sin in American Christianity. I think gluttony is one of those issues in your life and mine that it's so pervasive in our culture that we have lost our eyes to see it. Therefore, we are all in deep need in this room of thinking this issue of gluttony through. To do that, I want to go to John 6. John 6. Now, we have spent time in this particular story going verse by verse and, and getting into the weeds of the story. This sermon is not going to be that. It's going to take this story from a 30,000 point, uh, you know, sort of view. And I want to look at some of the big picture issues going on here. So with that in mind, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. <clears throat> Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, 
But what are they for so many people? Jesus answered, have the people sit down. Now there was, as, there was much grass in this place, so the men sit down, about 5,000 in number. So 5,000 men, probably another 10 to 15,000 ladies. We have a total of 20,000 people out here, 15 to 20,000. <clears throat> Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Here's the first thing I want you to see from John 6. I want you to see food as a gift from God. Food as gift. And this is one of the things this passage shows us, that food really is a good gift from God. It's one of the things that when you think of food in your life, the next time you sit down to eat, you should think this food is evidence that God is good. It is evidence that the Lord is kind to me. It's the evidence that the Lord loves me enough to provide for me. Food should help us see all of those things. It should, it should resonate in us as a gift from a good father called God, called God in the Bible. That This is food in the Bible. It's a gift from God. Now think about how this plays out in the passage. See, the story could have gone like this. The story could have gone, uh, Jesus uh, sees this crowd and he knows they're getting hungry. And he knows they're not just hungry, but they're on the verge of getting hangry. I mean, it's getting serious around here. These people need some food. Now think about how the story could have gone. Jesus could have done a miracle that went like this. He could have done a miracle that was directly applied to their appetite. He could have prayed, and as he said, amen, everyone in the crowd, 15, 20,000 people in the crowd, just had this sense of, I'm no longer hungry. I actually feel satisfied. I feel full all of a sudden. See, he could, the miracle could have gone that way, but that's not how the story reads, is it? Rather, he looks at the crowd, they're hungry, and rather than applying the, the miracle directly to their appetite, he applies the miracle directly to food. He creates enough like fish sandwiches to feed 15 to 20,000 people with basketfuls left over. He creates food and he feeds them then. He satisfies that hunger appetite in them through making food. Now that is telling us something. That is showing us that food is meant to be a gift from God Almighty. Now you also see this play out in the opening chapters of the Bible. This is where it's just really explicit in the Bible. Um, In Genesis 1, God creates um, the world. He makes it inhabitable for men. Then he places men in it, men and women, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 1.29, God officially says, let me show you one of the gifts that I've given you. Genesis 1.29 reads like this, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. The Lord is saying, "Can, can I show you one of the things I've done for you? I've created you with an appetite for hunger and I have made things called food to satisfy it. Let me give that to you. And then after the flood, it's, it's our, you know, essentially our pantry that the Lord gives us expands. So after the flood in Genesis 9 uh, verse 3, the Lord comes back and says this. Now it's not just plants. Now he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plant, now I give you everything. The Lord is saying, let me show you how I am gifting you something that's very precious, something that's very good, food. I'm giving you all of this food to satisfy that hunger that I've planted in your your heart, that physical appetite that I've given you. So food, here's the point. Food is seen in the Bible as a a good gift from our heavenly father. That's food. It's a gift from God. Now, like all of God's gifts, here's the problem that we have with them. Because of the introduction of sin in Genesis chapter three, God's good gifts for us oftentimes become gods. They become idols. So so for us, food is not just a gift because this world is broken and because sin is now in it, food is oftentimes a God for us. So let's think about food as God for a moment. And this is what we see in John chapter six. So if you keep following the story and look down at verse 25, 
In verse 25, we have uh, Jesus. He's just fed all the people. He's gone to the other side of the sea. And this is where you pick it up in uh, John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him, the crowd, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, I want you to think about what's happening in this moment. God in the flesh, Jesus himself, is standing right in front of this crowd of people. This is the God who created their appetite. The God who created their taste buds. The God who created food. The God who, who designed this thing. You get hungry, you eat food, it hits your taste buds and just explodes with fla you know, flavor. That God who's done all of that is right in front of them. And Jesus in this moment is saying, he's rebuking them. He's saying, here's your problem. You, you have come to me in this moment. You have come and you're standing right in front of me in this moment. And rather than having your hearts wide open to allow your deep spiritual soul craving to be satisfied in me, you have come to me rather, instead, you've come to me like this. You have come to me with your mouths wide open, wanting another piece of bread. Do you see what's happening here? Their gluttonous hearts have so distracted their worship that when God Almighty is standing in front of them, they don't even care about that. All they want is something to fill their stomach. That, that's what you call gluttony in the Bible. They have, a, they have a problem that how they're relating to food in this moment is dysfunctional. They have all sorts of disordered desires inside of their hearts attached to food. Now, I want to take a second to kind of work through some of the issues around gluttony. And I want to start by defining it. John 6 is walking us into a disordered relationship with food. So what does that mean? What is gluttony in the Bible? And I, I want to just give you the, the most simple sort of a definition I can give to get you thinking kind of down this road. Um, gluttony in the Bible, you could define it like this. Gluttony is food worship. It's food worship. It's elevating food to the place of God. This is, we're into idolatry sort of language here. It's elevating food to the place of God. It's taking one of God's gifts and inflating that gift and trying to treat that gift of God as if it is God himself. It's looking to food rather than fellowship with God to satisfy those deep cravings you have in your soul. Th those cravings to be okay, that sense of being okay, that craving for comfort and satisfaction, that craving for control that every human being is hardwired with by God. It's, it's looking away from God to those things. We're not looking at God to satisfy those deep spiritual cravings in us. Rather, we're looking to food to satisfy those things. I love how Frederick Buechner said it. He said, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for his or her spiritual malnutrition. So it's, it's this deep spiritual craving. Spiritually, we are malnourished. We have this gaping hole inside of us. And rather than taking that deep spiritual craving that we have and running to God with it, the one person, the one being that can fill that deep craving and satisfy that deep craving, we just start trying to stuff every sort of thing we can stuff into it, namely food. This meal, that meal, a bunch of that meal. We start trying to stuff that into that spiritual craving. This is gluttony. Gluttony is food worship. Now, I want to just address two quick myths with gluttony, and I want you to notice how we did not define gluttony. So I want to point out two things here, that we did not define gluttony as either of these two things. Number one, gluttony is not being overweight. That is not how you would define gluttony. If you think of gluttony, and this is how most people think about gluttony. They, most people think like this. I can scan a crowd and I can see because this person looks this way and that person looks that way, I can tell on the surface just by skinning the crowd who deals with gluttony or not. That is, if you think like that, you have a very shallow view of gluttony. You're not thinking along the lines that the Bible thinks of when it thinks of gluttony. So let me just address a couple of things with, with the issue of being overweight. Three things about it really quick. Just to give some of the complexity that goes into how weight works in our life. In one sense, weight, like our bodies, works like a ledger. There's income, how much we eat, and then there is expenses, how we, like what we burn, like through activity and exercise in our life. So 
People that are overweight don't always have an income problem. They always have a food intake problem. Sometimes being overweight is an exercise or an expense problem. So just allow yourself to have some depth to how you think about weight. That's just one of the complicating issues. Another complicating issue when it comes to being overweight is metabolism. Some people have metabolisms that work on a lot higher scale than other people have at work. Right, so I, I've already told you, I struggle with gluttony. Gluttony is an issue in my life, and I'm relatively thin. So it, what is going on there? It has nothing, to, you can't look at me and tell that. But that's what we have to get behind, what you would just scan across the crowd and see and know that gluttony runs deeper than that. It can't be defined as just simple, are you, you know, appropriately, do you weigh the appropriate amount? Like if you're a person with a slow metabolism versus a fast metabolism, that's gonna have all sorts of bearings on your weight. And thirdly, uh, we have to be aware of, uh, of people who have had a season where they have gained a lot of weight. If that's you in the room, you will testify to this. If, if there's been a moment where you have been way overweight and now you have been fighting to get it back under control, you will know, if you're that person, that you gain weight much more quickly after that. And so, like, I have friends who our, our eating patterns could mirror one another almost to the T. So we could eat the exact amount. What I eat is what they eat, and we're eating the same amount. But because I have not had some of their past experiences, when I gain weight and we're eating the exact same thing, I gain two pounds, and yet at the same time, they gain 15 or 20 pounds. So I'm just saying, you need to have depth to how you think about that. And if your view is gluttony is being overweight, you have a, a, dist a biblically distorted view of gluttony. Secondly, Gluttony is not defined as overeating. It's not defined as overeating. If, you, if that's your view of gluttony, you would have a shallow view of gluttony. The Bible draws a distinction, a line between what the Bible would call feasting and what the Bible would call gluttony. There is a line between those two things. So there are times, if you read the Bible, there are times, like Deuteronomy 14, 26 is a, is a prime example. There are moments when the Lord looks at his people and says, I want you to stop everything else you're doing. I want you to stop it all. And I want you to pull some money together. And I want you to buy food and good food. And I want you to eat a lot of it. That's feasting in the Bible. There are times when the Bible says, you should do that. There should be a moment where you eat more than you need. Eat like that. Eat, I mean, just satisfy the craving for food. Go for it. There are times when the Bible says you should do that. That's feasting in the Bible. Um, Jesus was oftentimes accused of that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Matthew 22, when Jesus is imaging forth the kingdom of God, he says, you know what it's gonna be like? A massive wedding feast where we, I mean, we eat a lot. Revelation 19 has the same sort of a picture of the coming kingdom of God. It's gonna be the wedding supper of the lamb where we feast together. So, so in the Bible, there's a line between gluttony and feasting. The Bible has moments where it's saying, you should enjoy God's good gifts. You should eat a, and drink a lot of it. Go for it. There, there's moments where that is perfectly appropriate. Okay, so with that said, let me try to work through now the two sort of faces of gluttony. So if that's gluttony defined, it's a worship of food. It's a food worship. Let me show you two ways, two faces that gluttony oftentimes plays out in our life like. Here's one. The first one is the much more obvious one. We might call it the gluttony of excess. This is one way that food worship plays itself out. So one difference between feasting and gluttony is this. Feasting is an occasional eating much more than you would need. On the other hand, a gluttony of excess is habitually eating more than you need. See, and here, here's what I have come to find about me. When I sit down at the table, I consistently, not just occasionally, I consistently eat much more than I need. And it has taken me a long time to see, the Bible has a word for that. The word is called sin. And inside the, the category of sin in the Bible, there is a specific word to, to address habitually eating much more than you need. And that specific word is called gluttony. This is gluttony of excess, habitually eating more than you need. And so just ask yourself the question, just look at your last week and the meals that you have eaten over the last week and ask yourself, are you consistently, when you sit down at the table, eating more than you need? Not an occasional feasting. That's, that's a, we're talking about something different there. We're talking about consistently eating more than you need. You could be thin and that be happening or not. The issue is, are you consistently doing that? 
just I want, I want you to take a moment to think about that, reflect on the last seven to 14 days of meals, how would I rate the, the quantity that I eat? Now, when it comes to gluttony of excess, that could also be an eating way too fast, eating so fast that it is impossible to thank God for the food that you're eating. That can be gluttony of excess. It can also be um, continually snacking throughout the day when you don't need food. Like just constantly having to have something in your mouth to soothe you. I mean, think about what gum is. Gum is a workaround to our gluttonous desires. It is putting something in our mouth that's not gonna like cost us with calories and all that, just so we can have something in our mouth to kind of soothe us. So, so just ask yourself those sort of questions. Are you constantly snacking? When you sit down to eat a meal, have you already eaten a meal by just picking and poking on things before you even sit down to eat the meal? All of that is evidence of a gluttonous heart. Now, I, I wanna just be careful here and just make sure I drive this point home again. Gluttony is less about the amount that you're eating and more about the reason that you're eating. That's the issue with gluttony. Gluttony is not primarily a, I overate or I didn't overeat. Gluttony is primarily disordered desires that are motivating why you're eating. That's the issue of gluttony. It, see, when, when, we, when, our glutton, when our hearts are gluttonous, we approach food as if it is God. We are, we're approaching food in that moment saying and demanding. I need things from you right now and I need you to give them to me right now. We go to food in those moments to compensate for our lack of joy. We're going to food, when gluttony is controlling us, we're going to food in that moment to compensate for a hard day, to compensate for our frustrations, to compensate for our uh, disappointments in the day. It's going to food as if it is God that is gluttony. That's the main issue. It's not so much an amount of, you know, the quantity is not so much the amount. The issue is why are you going to food? That's the issue of gluttony. And a gluttonous heart, especially that of excess, is going to food demanding that it give you what only God can give you. That sense of being okay, all of those sort of things. So that's gluttony of excess. That's the, the obvious way gluttony plays out. Here's the second face of gluttony. The second face of gluttony is gluttony of delicacy. Gluttony of delicacy. Now this is a much less obvious way that food worship plays itself out in our life. Now hear me when I say this. It's possible to worship food or to seek satisfaction in food as we consume food, but it's equally possible to worship food or seek satisfaction in food in the way that we avoid food. Hear that. It's a really important distinction for you to know. This is why sin is so tricky and idolatry is so tricky in our life. It is possible to worship food as we consume food, excessively eating it, it's possible to worship food as we avoid food, saying, no, I'm not gonna eat it. In either one of those two ways, we can be gluttons. The reason being, food is still the thing controlling us. Um, C.S. Lewis, and just what I have grown to like anticipate with him, has especially good insight when it comes to gluttony. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, we are overhearing conversations between demons. It's a really weird book in that way. He is writing from a demon's perspective um, and he is giving us an inside view for how demons would want to tempt and distract and harass people. So in the book, we are uh, overhearing the conversation between Screwtape, who's an experienced demon tempter, as he is coaching up Wormwood, who is an inexperienced demon tempter. And in one chapter of the book, it deals with gluttony and how demons use gluttony in our lives. And basically, the, the point of the chapter C.S. Lewis is making is... Um, you know, Screwtape is saying, we have totally hoodwinked these people. They think the only way gluttony would ever show itself in their life is gluttony of excess. But we've hoodwinked them to, 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 to only see it that way while we have, we have accomplished the same goal, the same sort of food worship, just in a much different way. Not through excess, but through delicacy. Then he gives this illustration and, and just applauds this one other demon that's been tempting this one lady with gluttony of excess for a good while. And listen to how he says it. Here's the fruit of this gluttony of delicacy. She, he says, this, this lady who's, a, you know, a glutton of delicacy, she is a positive terror to the hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a little sigh and a smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea. 
weak but not too weak, and the teeniest weeniest bit of really crisp toast. Do you see what she's doing? Because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her. She never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. See, in this moment, she's not, she is not approaching food in excess. She is approaching food from a real delicate point of view. She's offered X, and that's just way too much from her. So please take that back and give me half of X. She's approaching it like that, and she never sees that what's controlling her is a desire to get what she wants when she wants it, regardless of how it inconveniences others. He goes on. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, of being a glutton, at the very moment of being a glutton, she believes that she is practicing temperance and self-control. You see how sneaky that is? She can't see that in that moment of refusing food, she's still being a glutton. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work, which this devil in particular has been doing for years on this old woman, can be gauged by the way in which her belly now dominates her whole life. Now, isn't that interesting? He's saying her belly dominates her whole life, but she is thin. She doesn't overeat. I mean, she's got fine taste, and her belly is dominating her. Now, that's the, that's the must, much less obvious way for a worship of food to play out. Now, think about why are both of those considered glutton? You know, wh- why is it that both of those would be under the umbrella of sin and gluttony in the Bible? Why is that? Now, just put yourself, watch the two people come to the table. She is the delicate person, and then we've got the excessive person. Ask yourself, what is the common denominator between the two? Here it is. When they sit down at the table, they both have this controlling desire. I want to be pleased in this meal. I've got things I want out of this meal right now. And in and of itself, that would be okay. But here's what makes it not okay. First, it's I want to be pleased. I want to be pleased right now in this meal. Secondly, here's what makes it not okay. I will do whatever it takes to be pleased in this meal. The excessive guy is saying, I will eat as much as it requires to be pleased in this meal. The delicate person is, I will have this meal fine-tuned to my perfection, regardless of what it costs other people to be satisfied in this meal. But the thing controlling both of them is that whatever it takes attitude toward the table when they sit down toward it. Okay, now let me just take a moment to apply this. When it comes to a gluttony of of delicacy, this is seen in the person who will harass a waiter to no end to make sure that food gets plated in just the right way and comes out in just the right way to meet their appetite. It's that person. It's the person who will send that meal back in to be recooked 15 times regardless of what it's costing anyone else around them to make sure it is cooked perfectly to their appetite. It's that sort of a person. It's the person who is saying, when they sit down at the table, I will inconvenience people to no end to make sure this food is exactly the way I want it. That's glutton of delicacy. It shows itself not just in overeating, but in obsessing about our food. See, that, that delicacy thing can also be seen in the person who is always on the latest, greatest diet. It can be seen in the person who knows the calorie count of every item on every menu in every restaurant in the United States of America. It can be seen in that person. See, it's got all of those different faces to it. It's the person who, who is obsessing about food. If you're a foodie, I think you need to consider this. A foodie is a person who knows good food and has developed a palate to distinguish between good and bad food. In and of itself, there is nothing wrong with that. In a lot of ways, if you're a foodie in the room, you will get to praise and worship Jesus in eating in ways that those who are not foodies will never praise and worship Jesus. Because you actually know how good something, how good good food is. But hear me, here's when it crosses the line into the gluttony of delicacy. When, when your palate is so refined and your appetites for it are so, who cares what happens to the rest of the world, that you become above normal food, you have just crossed the line into delicacy, into gluttony. You just cross, and I think you should pay attention to that. You should be aware of your heart's willingness and ability to do that. So just ask yourself, do you see those two faces come out? 
You could be the person who is consistently overeating when you sit down, or you could be the person who, when you think of a person eating a 2,000 calorie hamburger, you're disgusted by it. As if that is a morally reprehensible thing to ever do in a person's life. If either one of those things are working itself out in your life, gluttony is likely motivating it and down underneath it. A worship of food, a disordered desire for food. Let me quickly cover some dangers with gluttony. Dangers of gluttony. Let me just run through three really quickly. Number one, gluttony, and I'm thinking in particular of excess here, can kill you. Like physically, it can kill you. Last year in America, one million people died from just poor eating sort of issues. In particular, glutton, you know, gluttony of excess. A million people. That is, that is crazy. We are, we are literally, let me just say it this way. Some of us in the room are eating ourselves to death. And I'm not saying that from a self-righteous point of view. I've already said, I have a problem with food. In a lot of ways, I am eating myself to death. I'm the guy that when I eat the, the one little baby Kit, you know, Kit Kat in our little cookie jar up there, I want to get like 15 in the next swipe in. I'm that guy. I mean, it, this is me too. I am right there with everyone that can identify with this in the room. But many of us are eating ourselves to death. And listen, I am not in the position of trying to be a nutritionist for us. I'm in the position of a pastor. And I'm asking you to think about this. I, and here's, the, here's the, uh, the way I would want to couch it. I think at the end of the day, you living to 75 and living well for Jesus gives much more honor to Jesus. Jesus accomplishes so much more in your life when you do that, as opposed to you dying at 55 because of poor eating habits. And I think many of us are leading on that trajectory of dying at 55 as opposed to 75 because food is out of control in our life. And I'm pleading with all of us in the room to take that seriously. And in that moment, we're not only cheating the Lord, we're cheating ourselves, we're cheating our family, we're cheating our kids, we're cheating our grandkids. And then the Lord is just inviting us, take that seriously today. And so this is one of the dangers that literally we, we, we can die with gluttony. I mean, it can physically kill us. Here's the second reason that we need to pay close attention to, to gluttony. Gluttony lies at the root of other sins. So think about, think about what the heart behind gluttony is. The heart behind gluttony is a self-indulgent heart. Self-indulgent is a heart that is saying this, I want what I want when I want it. That's the heart behind gluttony. It's the heart of self-indulgence. Now hear me. That is the exact same heart behind every other sin that you will ever commit in your life. I want what I want when I want it. And when we come to the table and we allow that, that self-indulgence, that what I want when I want it attitude to come out of us, when we do that, we are laying the tracks for the exact same thing with a million other vices in our life. It, see, this is how gluttony lies right at the origin of a lot of other sins in our life. Listen to how one guy says this. He says, gluttony and sexual perversion may seem like independent evils, but they both draw their strength from the same dark source, self-indulgence. To mix the metaphor, self-indulgence is a chameleon. Put it near food and it shades itself like gluttony. Put it near a pretty woman or a smooth-talking man, and it, and it takes on the colors of lust. Because of this, we cannot afford to think that our eating habits are somehow neutral territory in the fight against sin. Say that again. Because of this, we cannot afford to think about our eating habits as somehow neutral territory in the fight against sin. If we make peace with gluttony, we will make peace in one form or another with other vices. I am pleading with you, take gluttony seriously because in doing that, you will be helping yourself take a million other vices in your life very seriously. And if you don't take it seriously, you are laying the tracks for all of these other sins and vices to explode in your life. It lies at the, the root of other sins. And thirdly, the, the third danger of gluttony is it's often paired with injustice. In the Bible, when you see the word glutton, it is oftentimes set in the context of, of injustice going on. 
So you can see this throughout the Bible. First Corinthians uh, is one place to see this. Um, the Corinthian church is coming to take communion together for crying out loud. They're gathering as a church to take communion, the Lord's Supper. They're going to eat a meal together. And in that moment, because their gluttonous hearts are winning, some people are eating so much food that by the time the people at the back of the line get there, there's no food for them. Do you see that sort of, of, of injustice going on there? Now, I have never seen that exactly play out in the context of a church service at the Lord's Supper, but I have seen that play out in my life. I'm just going to use a hypothetical situation here. Have any of y'all ever been at a, at a home where you instantly walk in and you're going to have a meal together and you see there are, there's more people here than there is food? You ever had that moment? That's a dangerous moment, isn't it? <laughs> so in, in that moment, think about what your heart does. I, listen, I'm just using the hypothetical situation, never been there, never done this, but when I walk into a, a room and there is, there is more people than food, have you ever had that moment where you're like, there's a line of people, I know I need to be in the front half of the line, first of all. So I'm going to make sure I get in the front half of the line, and this is really the, like the moment of decision. You walk up to the, to the table of food, and you have to decide, am I going to get an equitable portion that would allow everyone in this line to get food, or am I going to get what I want? This is my chance to get it now. If I don't get it now, I'm not getting it. And I can just say from my own personal experience, I have a lot of shameful moments right there. Now just think about what's happening there. That sounds like a, a surface level funny story on the, you know, when, when you just kind of breeze by it. But think about what that is showing about our hearts. See, that is showing this about our hearts in that moment. That when push comes to shove, we don't care about other people. We care about getting what we want when we want it. See, that is, that is the heart of gluttony. This is why it's so oftentimes embedded into a context of injustice. I love what one author said. He said, inequity or injustice is the currency of gluttony. It's the currency of it. It's what motivates it. It's, it's what's all around gluttony. He goes on to say, when we yield to this sin, we consent to the poisonous fruit it bears in our relationships. See, gluttony will probably not be the thing that kills your relationships, but gluttony is showing you a heart that in the certain moments, in the right conditions, would kill anyone to get what you want when you want it. See, when you're seeing those little moments of gluttony, it's, giving, it's, it's exposing your heart in that way to show you what's inside of you. And listen, that should make every one of us shudder when we see it. That moment of, am I going to take an equitable scoop or am I going to get what I want right now, should make us all shudder. That is the currency of injustice surrounding gluttony in that moment. Let's finish here. Food redeemed. Food redeemed. In the end, gluttony is a worship problem. We wrongly worshiped our way into it. We have elevated food to the place of God. And there is only one way to get out of it. We worship, wrongly worship our way in. We have to rightly worship our way out, namely by putting Jesus back in his rightful place in our life. Um, Thomas Chalmers was an old Scottish minister, and he used to talk about this in terms where he would say, uh, he talked about it in terms of the expulsive power of a new affection. See, willpower will never work in your battle against gluttony. It will never work. The only way for you to ever battle gluttony is for you to get something better than gluttony or better than food in front of you. See, the only way you will ever get out of, you know, gluttony of excess versus gluttony of delicacy, the only way you will ever get your heart out of that disordered desire for food, that food worship, the only way that will ever happen is to worship your way out to get something bigger and brighter, namely Jesus, back in its rightful place. Now, this is what John 6 is showing us. Now, look at how John 6, this story continues. Look at verse, uh, John 6, verses 26 again, or 27. Starting in verse 27, Jesus has just rebuked their gluttonous heart. And then he says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Gosh, some of us just need to hear that. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Don't work for this food that perishes. Work for the food that's going to last. For on him, God, is, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said, 
what must we do to be doing the work of God? Like, what do we do to labor for the right food? If we don't want to labor for the food that perishes, but we want to labor for the right food, what do we do for that? He answers, verse 29, Then Jesus said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The number one issue in every one of our lives in this room right now is that we believe in Jesus. That we get Jesus back into his rightful place that we actually get our worship of Jesus back directed toward him. That is the number one issue in everyone's life. See, if if right now you're asking the Lord to grow and mature you in certain areas, maybe it's patience, maybe it's self-control, self-control, you know, or contentment and applied to maybe it's your finances, money and possessions, maybe it's singleness, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your job, but whatever you're asking the Lord for right now, behind everything you're asking on a behavioral level lies this core issue. You need the Lord to help you believe in the one whom he has sent, namely Jesus. It is the work of all of our lives. It is the main issue of following Jesus, believing in Jesus. Then you get down to verse 25, and Jesus clarifies, what does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to to actually believe and to keep your faith in Jesus? What does it mean to worship Jesus? What does it mean to, to redirect our worship away from food and back to Jesus? Verse 35 is the answer. We've been able to spend several of our, the last several months, we've been able to spend some time in this verse. Verse 35, but Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst, shall never thirst. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is it that God planted in me an appetite for food? Why did he give me taste buds? Why did he create food? Why does he create the whole thing where we eat food and enjoy it so much? Why did God do that? Do you know the answer to that? The reason that that God created food is so that food, our taste buds, our appetite would be a signpost to point us straight to Jesus. That's the reason that God's given you food. The reason that you know what it tastes like and what it feels like to put good food in your mouth and to to chew it and to swallow it. The reason is so that God could look at you in Psalms 34, 8 and say this now, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, just like you ate that food, just like you ate your last meal, taste me like that and see that I'm good. Come to me like that. Taste me like that and and just watch me satisfy that deep spiritual craving that you have. See, the reason that you have food, taste buds, all the appetites, the reason you have that is so that in John 6, Jesus could look at you and say, now let me tell you what all of this food thing is about. It's about this. I am the bread of life. When you come to me, that deep spiritual hunger you have, this is the moment it gets satisfied. What what does it mean to come to Jesus in faith? It is coming to Jesus like this. It's coming to Jesus like the man who is starving to death comes to a well-cooked steak. That's what coming to Jesus looks like. It's coming to Jesus like that when you put all, you lean in, put all of your faith in him and you experientially taste him. You taste him as the one who satisfies that deep spiritual craving you have in your soul. That's what believing in Jesus means. That's what coming to Jesus means. That's what worshiping your way out of food worship looks like. It means coming to Jesus like that, with all of your worship, all of your desires pointed to him. Now, I wanna give you one practical thing to finish up. The one practical thing, I'm gonna give everyone in the room homework this week. I want everyone in the room this week to take one day and fast. See, more than you need a new diet to get your food issues correct, you need new worship, namely toward Jesus in your life. Fasting is one of those ways that we can do that. So I'm gonna ask everyone in the room this week to fast. What is a fast in the Bible that is typically seen as abstaining from all food and going on a water diet for an extended season? I'm just gonna say maybe as a starter for us in the room, we could do that for one day. So going without food for one day, nothing but water for one day, maybe think and consider doing like a dinner to dinner time. You're missing, listen to this, two meals. Two meals. Most of us could do that. So going from dinner to dinner, a 24-hour period with just water. Now, why would I say let's do that? Why is that? 
your body is made of two components. So, so you, you're made of two things, spirit and body. Spirit's the internal you, the real you, like the, the real you inside of you. That, that's the spirit. The body is this covering that we have that covers our spirit. So this flesh and bones that we have on us. Now, when it comes to the body, it is a brutal thing for all of us in the room. Francis Assisi, the old monk, he called his, his body, listen to this, brother ass. That's how he referred to his body, brother ass. He's not cussing in this moment. He's calling his, his body a donkey. That's what he's calling it. Now, you know what a donkey is, right? I mean, that is, a st- I mean, that, that is like the, the stereotypical, the, the one if you're going to use like the animal that is more stubborn than any other animal, the donkey's the animal for that, right? This is what he's saying. That's my body. It is so stubborn. I, when, when I want to do this, everything in me wants to go this way toward God. My body is over here saying, not going to happen. We're going this way. That we, we, we all know this. this is, I mean, Paul, he, he empathizes with this in Romans 7. When he says, man, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our body is so weak. Now, what is fasting doing? Fasting is the moment where we are telling our body, brother ass, we're telling that donkey, it will no longer be our dictator. That's what we're doing in a fast. We're looking at our body and saying, not today. Today, you don't win. You are not the dictator today. Jesus is my master today. You don't win today. Jesus wins today. Fasting is a simple way where we are saying that. Now, when you fast, I want you to ask the Lord for two things. Here are the two things. Number one, I want you to ask the Lord to point out where your desires are disordered. Just ask the Lord, Father, show me where I have disordered desires toward food, toward money and possessions, toward marriage, the prospect of a marriage, toward my job. Show me all the places where my desires are disordered, where I have a worship problem in my life. Show me these things. And can I just say what fasting will do? It will help you see that. I mean, there's a reason why we all know what the word hangry means. See, food has a way of of functioning like an emotional covering in our life. When you eat something, you're just naturally a little bit happier. That anger in you has a little bit harder time getting out. When you remove that food and that emotional covering, all of those ugly things in you have a way of being exposed really quickly. And as those things are being exposed, ask the Lord to show you what is wrong with your heart. Where is worship distorted in your heart? And secondly, second question. So first, ask the Lord to point out your distorted desires. Secondly, ask the Lord to point your desires to Jesus. Ask the Lord, say, say, every time your stomach growls this week, say to your stomach, I want the Lord more than I want food right now. I want, the, I want Jesus more than I want another bite of something else. I know right now that my, my future, my life does not depend on consuming another meal. My life depends on consuming Jesus. I mean, remind yourself. See, fasting is a way of reminding ourselves of that, of asking the Lord to cultivate in us deep affections for Jesus. So ask the Lord to point your affections toward Jesus. I'll finish with this quote from um, one of my favorite authors. In terms of fasting, he says it like this. Asking the Lord to point your affection to Jesus. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, so if you're in the room right now and you're like, I know I don't desire the Lord like I want to desire the Lord. He goes on. It's not because you have drunk deeply of the Lord and are satisfied. That's not the issue. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of this world. Your soul is stuffed with small things that will never satisfy your soul. And there is no room for the great, namely God. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God that lives in every human being. And it can be awakened. And I, and this is what I'm inviting you to this week, and I invite you to turn from the doling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry for one day this week and to say with some simple fast this week to say this, this much, oh God, this much, enough to fast for a day, this much, oh God, I want you. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.